In response to the current economic downturn, governments around the world are looking to get all of the tax revenues they can. But corporations have been able to take advantage of tax breaks and loopholes that add up to billions of dollars in lost revenues. Joining me now are Jeff Gerth, a senior reporter for ProPublica, and Megan Murphy, investment bank correspondent for the Financial Times. They've collaborated on a series that looks into how these corporations have been able to do it, and I'm pleased to welcome them to today's underreported segment. Hello. Hi. Individuals who are trying to avoid taxes can just open an offshore tax account in Switzerland or on uh, certain Caribbean islands. Is that an option for corporations, or is it a little harder for them? Well, uh, it, it's it's easier for both. Although, if uh, if you're an individual in the United States, you have to declare uh, a foreign bank account to the IRS, and if you don't, you you can wind up in jail. What about for corporate corporations? The uh, usual corporate tax rate here in the United States is uh, 35%, isn't it? Correct. And in the U.K., it's 26%? Correct. So that would make it a lot more appealing to be, uh, to be putting your money in the U.K., isn't it? Well, I think that, I mean, this is always one of the issues that goes on, and one of the issues that the series was intended to delve into is this practice of what some people call tax arbitrage, what some people call a natural byproduct of differences between different countries in their tax regime, and whether or not this is an area that governments around the world, let alone in the U.S. and the U.K., have sufficiently looked into, cracked down on, whatever you want to call it, but that whether corporations, whether sophisticated financiers, lawyers, etc., are exploiting rules between different countries that essentially give them an advantage. And and that's, you know, sort of that's something that I think, you know, everyone's trying to get the handle on right now. Well, one article in the series describes a policy known as check the box. How does that work? Uh, well, that, that that's a policy that was created by the United States Treasury uh, back in the Clinton administration uh, somewhat by accident, and it basically allows American corporations um, to designate certain um, foreign companies that they control uh, to be disregarded for U.S. tax purposes, and it allows them to shift some income out of a high-tax country like Germany to a low-tax country like Luxembourg or the, the Netherlands and keep it abroad and, and not pay any taxes unless they bring it back into the United States. Well, how did other countries react to check the box when it was introduced? Business capitals like the U.K. and Germany couldn't have been very happy. They weren't very happy, and they complained to the United States Treasury about it, and the Treasury tried to correct um, the uh, the rule they put in place, but the business community and its allies in Congress um, fought back and were able to uh, beat back the effort. And as a result, a few months later, the Treasury uh, rescinded its proposal to uh, reform the uh, the rule. How much tax revenue does the U.S. lose each year through check the box? Um, well, the the U.S. Treasury estimated in 2009 about $10 billion a year, um, and then there's also billions of dollars that foreign governments uh, in Europe, for example, lose, but there's no official estimate on what those losses are. So, Megan, are these, uh, these entities that the American companies create uh, in other countries formed purely uh, as financial subsidiaries, or... Are they real operations? 
Well, in many of these cases, subsidiaries be you know created solely for the purpose of <clears throat> tax efficient transactions, et cetera. And I think one of the important points to make is that you know there's there is an argument on that's frequently made by corporate America, by corporate UK, by corporate Europe that minimizing tax exposure is not only uh, perfectly lawful and perfectly legal, but actually you know serving the best interests of investors and shareholders of these companies, obviously, in terms of that as long as things are within the law, it's well within their rights and their sort of best interest to minimize tax exposure. So I think that's always the issue that I think Jeff and I have been working on and sort of looking into is, is where do you have this sort of uh, what is you know what is legal, but also what is what is being is there real substance behind these transactions? And if there isn't real substance behind these transactions, what are governments doing about it? And is it um, essentially an accepted form of of creating you know very complex structures, um, but well within the rules as well? Why do so many of these countries send their money to the Netherlands? <laughs> I think it's the same question. I mean, I think the Netherlands is one. You know, we've had issues about Luxembourg, about Ireland, about the Caymans, about various different countries. And I didn't think, you know, several different countries will say always that it's well within their sort of own uh, government obligation to sort of decide what type of tax regime they're going to uh, offer to foreign companies. You know, here in the U.K., there's constant debate about what sort of corporate tax rate uh, the U.K. should offer to remain competitive in Europe when there's so many countries offering a lower rate of corporation tax. And it is one area where countries feel it is their prerogative to try and attract businesses to, you know, offer a lower rate, to offer them more benefits, et cetera. So it's, it's more complex than sort of is there a country that is being seen as a place where people can set up shell companies, people can set up, you know, artificial structures, et cetera. It's, it's part and parcel of a country's attempt to market itself, for lack of a better word, in certain respects to international business. My guests are Megan Murphy, investment banking correspondent for the Financial Times, and Jeff Gerth, senior reporter for ProPublica, who have collaborated on a series of articles, which you can find, by the way, on a link on our show page at WNYC.org. President Obama has talked about closing corporate tax loopholes. Is check the box the kind of thing he's talking about, Jeff? Uh, well, yes and no. He, uh, when he came into office, his first budget uh, that he proposal that he released in 2009 uh, included as its biggest uh, revenue gainer um, reforming check the box. Uh, but he subsequently backed off on that, and when he released a more recent set of proposals to raise revenue through international tax reform. Uh, this was last month. Uh, the, the check the box was not uh, among the proposals. Well, has check the box become kind of untouchable when it comes to tax reform? Um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say anything's untouchable, but it's certainly uh, close to sacrosanct, and I think that it is a very ubiquitous uh, planning mechanism for every major uh, American company that has any overseas operations to it, and it, uh, it it is alive and well and thriving and used uh, quite frequently in in the business community. And and I believe, you know, individuals use it as well, although they would have to set up, you know, a company as the vehicle to do it. But it, it can be used by individuals as well. Megan, was the IRS even aware of how much money was being lost? Uh, wasn't it their British counterpart? who gave them the heads up on this? 
Well, that's sort of in a in a in a separate package in the series, referring to um, very complex schemes, which are known as foreign tax credit, or in some circles are known as foreign tax credit generator schemes. And these were very complex deals, which were arranged by um, UK banks for US banks, and uh, went on for years uh, prior to them being shut down by the IRS, as you said, also by being notified after by UK authorities. But I think that also goes to the heart of we have to remember that prior to the financial crisis, this was actually a thriving, huge practice of structured finance tax transactions and people looking to work, again, as I said, well within what was considered at the time parameters of the law to find, uh, loopholes isn't the right word, but to find opportunities to sort of um, minimize tax exposure and maximize tax credits. And those deals are now being scrutinized um, in courts all over the U.S. as uh, banks and the IRS fight it out as to whether or not these credits were actually legitimate and whether or not they should have been obtained. And, and it's another thing that we sort of forget now in looking back from the crisis as to how big this practice was and how many incredibly bright people were focused on this highly esoteric area of structured finance. So let's talk about what's happening in the courts. The British bank Barclays was heavily involved in what are called STARS deals. Uh, can you explain how those work and how they've wound up in the American courts? Well, I think that STARS deals, uh, and we pick them out, uh, ProPublica and the Financial Times, because although they're representative of a practice that was going on in many different guises and many different forms, they are the ones that are now being litigated in various different forms. And basically, the STARS transaction we picked out, whereas you said, were deals that were structured by Barclays and by their U.S. bank counterparties um, that were designed, what the U.S. government says were designed to inappropriately claim what's called foreign tax credits. And that, in theory, is designed to prevent individuals and companies from being taxed twice. In theory, if you're paying tax in the U.K., you shouldn't have to also pay tax in the U.S. on the same thing. But what the government claims is that these deals were structured so that um, they were only structured to gain what is, you know, what is called foreign tax credits and, and, and inappropriately structured to gain those credits. Now, the banks conversely claim that these were very complex deals that allowed them to obtain significantly lower-cost loans, significantly lower-class finance to finance their operations, that they were entirely in keeping with the rules and regulations at the time, and, in fact, that they were a commonly accepted avenue of obtaining finance, similar to going to a bank loan, similar to going to the capital markets, et cetera. And what we're seeing is that these transactions are providing a very, very rare glimpse into this highly complex, highly esoteric world where we see thousands of pages of court documents and, you know, this sort of, even if you look at a diagram of these transactions, which we've spent, you know, hundreds of hours trying to compose, I mean, it boggles the mind to think of the complexity of these. It's very difficult to understand even after spending months on it, and I know Jeff feels the same. But and you, you quote a judge who said that uh, this was way beyond his abilities uh, because they're so complicated, STAR stands for Structured Trust Advantage Repackaged Securities. Even the name boggles my mind. Who came up with the... Who came up with this idea? Was this Barclays' idea? Well, I think that um, Barclays was a key player in these deals. There were accountancies involved as well. Uh, and this was, as I said before, I mean, this was a thriving area of structured finance before the crisis. Of course, in the aftermath of the crisis, many, particularly here in the U.K. and in the U.S., um, these practices have been shut down largely because of so much focus on this and obviously um, – 
there is now specifically in the UK an agreement among banks about what they're going to do with sort of structured tax deals and deals that are looking to benefit from tax so-called arbitrage opportunities. But, you know, exactly as you said, I mean, the name alone is 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 confusing. It's unclear what it stands for. And when you look through the sort of myriad steps taken to achieve these goals, um, to achieve the goal of sort of obtaining uh, obtaining foreign tax credits, you can't. The ordinary reader, I think, and that judge in particular, uh, would struggle to see how these were. You know, that is the very essence of were they have underlying economic substance or were they just purely artificial tax credit generator deals? That is the issue being debated right now in courts. So, how did they? Work? Work. American banks sent money to, to Barclays because the tax rate, the corporate tax rate, was lower in England? Well, it, 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 these deals are always, they have so many steps involved. Um, you know, for example, for an ordinary stars deal, what it involved was, and it basically functions, and the reason it works is because there's difference in tax treatment over a trust that's set up in the U.K., and, and none of it is sort of as direct as one company sending money to another, but it's always with the creation of an entity, and it, what it does is it, it looks to, uh, to sort of play one country's rules over how specific income produced from a trust uh, is taxed in the U.S. And, and the U.K. But again, I mean, this judge who said these deals were so complex he needed to call in a specialist, just to make it clear, this was a judge who was ed- educated at Harvard Law School, who, you know, clerked for a Supreme Court justice, who was a law professor for nearly a decade before he joined the federal bench. So if it, you know, even sends him to say, I need a specialist to come in, um, you only have to imagine the sort of layers of paperwork and the layers of, of, of sort of trans- Transfers going on, and what the IRS on one hand calls a circular flow of money, and what the banks on the other hand say is an entirely legitimate way of obtaining financing. Why hasn't the UK pursued stars-related cases in the same way that the Treasury Department here has? Did the UK actually get a net benefit, more taxes collected, because the US banks were paying UK taxes to get the US tax benefit? I I think that's a pretty good. You kind of answered your own question. And, you know, one thing I would add to all this is that the tax code itself is incredibly complicated. And then when you add in the the complications of structured finance and all the ways you can create instruments, you know, that are combinations of debt or equity or somewhere in, be, in between, the, the, the marriage of those two complicated worlds creates, you know, complications that are too much, I think, for the average person to comprehend. And in this litigation alone, Barclays has turned over, I believe, 170,000 documents. Mm. Um, so I, I think somewhere in here there's a cry for simplicity, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether it'll be heard or not. Well, even terminology, uh, Megan uh, corrected herself when she said loophole, but uh, what's the difference here between tax arbitrage and a tax loophole? Well, you know, the, the, the check the box was called the loophole by the uh, Obama Treasury Department in 2009. But, of course, you know, one person's loophole is another person's opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's, it depends upon what side of the fence you're sitting on, I guess. There's at least one name that's involved in tax arbitrage that's familiar to people who have been following the financial meltdown. Joseph Cassano, who ran the finance unit at AIG, was AIG a particularly large player in Stars deals? 
Well, they weren't they weren't as big as, as Barclays, but the, uh, they they came to it earlier on. In fact, they may have been one of the first. Uh, the court records put them involved in this as far back as 1993. Um, and, and Joe Cassano, as you correctly point out, was uh, at that point the uh, the head of a, a little unit inside AIG called the Transaction Development Group, and they were basically a, a handful of uh, lawyers and financial engineers who were coming up with creative ways to to make money, including taking advantage of, of differences between the U.S. And, and foreign tax regimes. I think the first deal they did actually involved uh, a couple of French banks and taking advantage of the fact that the French tax regime treats certain things one way and the, the IRS here treats it another way. And so um, this this became a, a quite successful uh, enterprise for AIG, uh, beginning back you know around the mid 1990s. Have other countries also lost a lot of tax revenue as a result of these deals? Well, I think just going back to the UK question, which you asked, I mean, this is one question that the series has looked at as to whether or not the UK exchequer here has lost out on revenue because of these deals, or whether it was a net beneficiary and. Because of the complexity, it's incredibly difficult to actually get an answer to that question. Obviously, in the U.S., um, the government is uh, defending and pursuing these sums, uh, but in the U.K., as you said, there haven't been, as as far as we know, litigation over these deals. And whether or not, uh, you know, other countries are looking at this in, in various different guises, not specifically stars, but different actions, I mean, I think... People are still pursuing cases that date back, you know, six years, five years, four years, and and it was a huge area, and and the outcome of which remains to be seen in terms of looking into these type of structures. Jeff, just one more thing: Are corporate tax rates likely to become an issue in the 2012 presidential election? Is um, is closing these corporate tax loopholes part of the debate yet, or will it yeah, ever be? I mean, there's no question. Look, the the most everybody, including President Obama, would like to see the corporate tax rate go down. The issue is whether you just unilaterally lower the rate to, say, 25%, or you lower it to, say, 25%, but at the same time do what's called broadening the base, which means getting rid of a lot of exemptions and loopholes that would allow you to lower the rate but still capture about the same amount of revenue. Now, the last time the United States did this in any significant way was 1986. Um, and and passed the landmark tax reform act that that lowered some rates but also got rid of a lot of of loopholes uh, uh, i'm not sure there's the same political uh, agreement on both sides of the aisle today that there was 25 years ago jeff girth is a senior reporter for propublica megan murphy is investment bank and banking correspondent for financial times and they've collaborated on a series of articles which uh, you can find through links on our show page at WNYC.org. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks Thank again. you.